Hello, it's Wednesday, 16th of February. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, is life too fast-paced for us? Apparently, a lot of us think so. A major new report by a think tank suggests migrants who cross the channel should be moved immediately to offshore bases. Is today D-Day for the Ukraine? I'm talking to an expert who thinks the tension could continue for weeks, months or even years. But first disaster for the royal family. Prince Andrew settles. It could cost up to £12 million. The Queen may have to dig deep to pay the bill. And Virginia Dufresne is free to speak after the Platinum Jubilee celebrations in June. So finally, Prince Andrew reached what most of us thought was probably an inevitable settlement between him and his accuser, Virginia Dufresne. Uh, it saved him from a very public and humiliating trial. Reports suggest the Queen will cover part of the cost of the settlement, which could end up costing £12 million, including a substantial donation to Virginia Dufresne's charity in support of victims' rights. Uh, it's thought the settlement was agreed, so there would be no possibility of the court case taking place during the Queen's much-anticipated Platinum Jubilee celebrations in June which Prince Andrew will not attend. Joining me now is Angela Levin, royal biographer and author of Harry, Conversations with the Prince. Angela, I think you and I thought this was inevitable, didn't we? He could not possibly go into court. It would have been humiliating. It would have been too embarrassing as well. When in the um, BBC interview in 2019, he answered questions so badly that... um, People were shuddering, couldn't believe their eyes or ears. And um, Virginia has a very, very smart lawyer to defend her. And he would make mincemeat of Prince Andrew. He just couldn't have answered them in a way that actually um, would make him look anything other than ridiculous, I think. And we also now know that Ghislaine Maxwell appears to have confirmed that the the infamous photograph of him with his hand around Jeffrey's waist, it's in her house, she's in the background, the photograph taken by Jeffrey Epstein, she appears in emails seen by the mail to have confirmed she thought the photo was genuine, which of course was central to Andrew's case, was that it could have been faked. Yes, I mean, but if someone says, I think it's genuine, I don't know that one necessarily believes that they do. If she said, yes, that is definitely genuine, that's another story. But I think people can, you know, bend and turn. So I, uh, something which is, I think, I don't expect that she remembers every photograph that was taken. And I don't think at the time she would have thought, oh, my goodness, this could be awful in the future. Um, I don't necessarily trust her. I don't know her, but um, she's been mixed up in some very unpleasant um, times and I, I don't know whether she means that or not really. Just the same as I'm not sure that Prince Andrew means what he says. I mean he was extremely rude about this woman who he said he's never met um, and he said you know he did never wanted to malign her but he has been maligning her for, for over a year um, and being charming and saying he wants to work for young women who have been um, sexually abused i mean ah goodness me i don't think people have in their 60s changed like that from one moment to the next and this is just a way of getting out of it of course it is well the thing is angela um by settling he can never now look at people in the eye and say 
I didn't have sex with that woman because he had a chance to fight the allegations in court and he ducked it. Yes, but I don't think it's the end of what we're going to hear because although Virginia isn't allowed to make any comments until after the Platinum Jubilee, she can write a book, she can appear on television, she can tell every story she likes in her own words. And it would be hard to believe that she didn't say things that would be extremely embarrassing again for the monarchy. I was shocked when I heard that they hadn't put into the agreement that she wasn't allowed to speak out. But as she is, she just has to wait a few more months. She's been waiting a very long time for this. Um, I think it's going to run and run, I'm afraid. How damaging is it for the Royal Family, Inc.? Because he is the Duke of York, a title the Queen gave Prince Andrew. Uh, Of course, her own father had been the Duke of York before he became king. Might he lose that title, Angela? And how damaging is it for the Royal Family as a whole, the way this has been resolved? Well, he can lose the title, but it has to be done through Parliament. It's not up to the Queen. Um, So she might do two of them together. Harry and um, and Andrew, but I think it's very uh, it's a very nasty cloud to hang over the royal family, and I and I think the monarchy has been very badly damaged by it because it's been so crude and long drawn out and awful. If right at the beginning he'd have said something and excused himself in a way that you might be able to accept. But this has gone on and on and on, and it's drip-fed anybody who wants to destroy the monarchy, I think. Yeah, I think the first allegations about uh, Prince Andrew and Virginia Dufresne were way back in 2011. Just think, that's more than a decade this has been hanging over the royal family. Yes, and I think it will hang over them a lot longer. You can't just get rid of something that, as you say, has been going on for such a long time. And his chances of doing anything uh, regal Um, any engagements working for any charity, I think are minus zero. You can't do that. I don't think anybody wants him on their notepaper heading that he's to do with it. Um, He's just cast out now. His mother won't cast him out, but Prince Charles, I doubt, is speaking to him. And um, it's a sort of lesson for everyone to learn, uh, not just about young girls, but just you 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 get the fruits of what you do and it could be it can be a very long wait just finally angela we know we we're not going to see him at the platinum jubilee you and i have talked about that already the celebrations but there is a memorial service for his father the duke of edinburgh who of course died last year and mercifully hasn't seen any of this will he be at that do you think Yes, he will be. And I have no problem with that because it is his father. And although it's part family, part national or international, I think you you don't stop someone from uh, wanting to be part of a memorial service to their father. I think that's entirely different. A lot of people would try and get photographs of him. I hope there's a way of smuggling him in. But I think that um, there's nothing that you can't stop that and shouldn't stop that. Indeed. That's Angela Levin, royal biographer and author of Harry, Conversations with the Prince. And as Angela says, this one, as we say, will run and run. Angela, great to talk to you. So the Prime Minister says Russia is sending mixed signals, but President Putin has also 
been sceptical as to whether Russia really is withdrawing many troops from the Ukraine border. They have said in Moscow they're pulling back some of their troops and Russian media agencies released footage showing some tanks being withdrawn. But other intelligence suggests Russian forces are being brought even closer to the border. So what should we make of it? What is really going on? Ben Ozog is team head and senior researcher for the Swiss and Euro-Atlantic security team at the Centre for Security Studies and joins me now. Benno, um, I'm confused. Uh, Russia, Putin is a brilliant propagandist. We know that. Is he, is he duping us in suggesting that he is withdrawing military hardware while all the time increasing numbers on the border? I think you're indeed rightfully confused, if I can say that. Um, we have these mixed signals, and as you indicate, with televised retreat of certain heavy equipment, including tanks, but these deployments still happen within Russia. So some of these tanks are moved to bases that are still, if you will, in the vicinity of Ukraine's borders. Um, it's certainly all of that is about pictures and signals. So at the very moment, Putin is trying to give the signal that they're de-escalating, that they're indeed following through with their promises, that they just held military exercises in Ukraine and never intended an invasion in the first place. At the same time, he's still trying to uphold the message that a military invasion could still be possible any time because some equipment, many troops will still stay and even even those that have left can immediately be be sent back because let let's let's not forget putin has pushed the agenda he's pushed west western leaders but he hasn't achieved any of his political demands so the atten- intention is still there to maintain that certain threat level and the ambiguity that they're so good at signaling. You're right. I mean, he hasn't got the concessions. What he would really like is a declaration from either Ukraine or NATO that Ukraine is not going to apply to join NATO or become part of NATO. If he doesn't get a concession like that, Benno, does that, in a sense, corner him, trap him into feeling that he'll have to do something militarily to save face back in Russia? That's certainly something I'm, I'm quite afraid of, and so are, so are other observers and experts, that this safe-facing element, that Putin can appear like the strong man that he thinks he is, and that he's portraying towards the Russian people, but also on the international stage. This image is quite important. And so there's certain pressure there to give him some kind of agreement and negotiations and maybe even a treaty at the end that looks like it's a compromise that Russia has achieved some of its goals. Some elements of that are actually likely and even to the benefit of European security at large. These are arms control agreements. Let's say some reduction of troop deployments and military exercises and so on in the region. But some others, and you indicated that potential Ukrainian membership of NATO is way, way different. Here we are in the in the weird trap that the actual membership of Ukraine in NATO isn't something to happen anytime soon, maybe even in the next decade or so. But at the same time, NATO feels like it cannot really revoke this open door policy, this declaration that countries who want to join NATO can apply and maybe get a membership action plan. This is a fundamental cornerstone of NATO's policy that they feel like they can't compromise on. And I will go even one step further to say that it's not just Ukraine's potential NATO membership that is at stake. It's also NATO's presence 
in Ukraine as such, or let's say um, Ukraine's Western orientation more generally. So the fact that uh, NATO countries are sending weapons to Ukraine, that Ukraine's de constitution declares that they want to join NATO, that a slight majority of Ukrainians want to do that. This is almost as threatening to Russia, to this idea of keeping Ukraine in its orbit than actual membership. So it's really hard, even were NATO to release some kind of declaration on membership, to have all these other factors go away that are really sticking points for Putin. What do we make also, Benno, of the Russian parliament, which voted to ask Putin to recognise two breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine, which could, of course, increase even more tension and could result in more troops being sent to that part of the that to that region? That's a highly interesting issue because it followed the suggestion by the Communist Party in Russia's parliament. So not actually Putin's political camp. Um, and observers wonder how to interpret it. One thing is very clear that this is not just the Duma, the Russian parliament, um, suggesting this recognition of the separatist publics in of itself, because the Duma isn't an actual parliament in the sense that we understand how a parliament should work. This is very much something that's been approved by the Kremlin before. The way we can interpret it is that this looming recognition of the separatist regions, which would completely derail the, the stalled peace process around these territories, the Minsk agreements, can be used potentially to put additional pressure on Kiev, on the Ukrainian government, to actually give concessions related to the Donbass, related to Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and if that doesn't happen, if, let's say, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, stays tough and doesn't offer anything in terms of that peace process, then may Putin may say that he follows the demand of the Russian parliament and thus the democratic will of Russia by recognizing these entities. In all fairness, this will not change too, too much on the ground because there's already a Russian presence on Ukrainian soil in these territories but it would completely derail whatever was left of this peace process. And given the current situation, I assume you can imagine as well that there's no alternative currently for any kind of peace process. It would really cement this ongoing um, armed conflict that is already happening at Ukrainian soil, even without a renewed invasion. Just finally, Benno, today, Wednesday, this was the day many people had flagged up as potentially the day when, if there is to be, a military incursion of any description, it would be today. Is it a significant date in any shape or form, or is this just the date a number of intelligence agencies deduced could be the one? I think it's really mostly the latter, that for the past weeks or so, even months, there has been this analysis that indicated that in mid-February, more or less, the Russian army would be would have the full capabilities to actually launch this full-scale invasion of Ukraine that exists as a worst-case scenario, if you will. It was never really tied to this very specific day, but it turned out to be that day everyone was kind of expecting. And in a way, Russia has had this capability and may still have it to invade. But as you say, nothing's happened. Ukraine, in a reaction to it, declared this day Unity Day to kind of emphasize this national unity that Ukraine has, its willingness to defend itself. So there's even a counter-narrative to that D-Day scenario, if you will. But once again, political demands have not been met. Negotiations are somewhat still ongoing. This both the military and the diplomatic struggle is still happening. So even though this day is passing without a military escalation, we're nowhere near any kind of resolution to that 
to that conflict. And I think we're really in here for, for the long haul. We should have patience because that could go on for another month, even years, if there's no real lasting solution there, which sadly looks really unlikely. So, yeah, it's it's we we can be glad that the escalation that we feared hasn't happened today, but it may still happen down the line if we don't deal with these fundamentals. Very interesting and a very sobering thought to end on. That's Ben Ozog, who's from the uh, Centre for Security Studies. Thanks so much for joining us. So the policy exchange think tank has published a report which suggests channel migrants should be deported to offshore processing centres within 48 hours of arrival as a best possible response to the problem of what would be known as the small boat arrivals across the channel. This plan is suggested in, in case where an agreement with France to take back migrants proves impossible. Stephen Wolfe is director of the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Stephen, this has been talked about in government before, so the migrants could be deported to centres such as Ascension Island, 4,000 miles away in the Atlantic, Alderney in the Channel Islands, even a sovereign base area such as Cyprus. Is it workable? Is it realistic? Will it happen? It's certainly workable and it's certainly realistic. It's something that we in the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity have called for for some time and we also called on the idea of negotiating with other countries to be able to undertake the same idea of taking channel boat migrants immediately out of the UK and dealing with them elsewhere. So the idea is great. The, the, the problem with it, and it's something that's been identified by the policy exchange is report, is that is there the government will and the desire of certain departments to carry it out because it requires two fundamental aspects. The first is legislation, which would disavow some parts of the Human Rights Act. And the second is the financial commitment and organizational element to take these people to these offshore centers. Uh, And the favored option, according to the think tank, is the Ascension Island. The weather is more hospitable uh, and they say the accommodation would be much less austere. I imagine also if if migrants think they're going to be deported 4,000 miles away uh, from Britain, that really would be a deterrent to get to cross the the channel in the first place. It would be because for many of them, it's actually taking them further back than where they left. As we know from our figures, around 83 to 84 percent of all the channel migrants are coming from Iran and Iraq. And the remainers are coming now from uh, Afghanistan. Those numbers are going to grow. We believe half a million are going to leave Iraq this year. Not all of them come to the UK, but a substantial number will try. And so if you provide an, an area where they know that they're going to be moved to is not the UK, it does two things. It puts a doubt into their mind whether they'll be able to stay. But it also puts pressure on the people traffickers because the people traffickers at the moment are laughing all the way to the bank because they know that they can take up to £12,000 from the total journey in, in, in costs from these people, knowing that they can arrive here with no problem. And once they're here, they can stay. How expensive would it be? This is something you, your own organisation has looked at. Uh, and some people have said it would be too costly. I think what we were looking at is when we analysed the Albanian option, and people were talking about placing an offshore centre in Albania, it would cost us about half a billion a year. Now, you put that in context, our research this year shows that we will be spending around 2.7 billion on that, and that's made up predominantly of housing. There's a 10-year contract for uh, 4.5 billion, and we're spending 4.7 million a day at the moment 
just on hotels and short-term accommodation, that's another 1.7 billion. So the idea that you can take that housing cost out and put it into another area, even if it was half a billion, we are clearly making substantial savings. The increased cost for us is the transportation cost to the Ascension Islands, whether you're placing them on large uh, militarized ships, certainly wouldn't advocate taking them by flights, but I believe others would want them to. So that cost would increase, but it would reduce the overall burden to the UK state by at least one and a half, if not two billion a year. We know the pretty pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, she talks pretty tough, and I've talked to her personally, and I've interviewed her for, for the Mail, and she would like to uh, to get a system like this in place. But there is resistance, I suspect, Stephen, around the Cabinet table. I, definitely, absolutely. There are those who do not see the issues of uh, channel migrants or mass migration coming illegally or legally into the UK as an issue at all. Some believe the, the idea that it's economically beneficial overall on GDP terms and GMP terms. I don't agree, but they certainly believe it. And secondly, there are those who have really seriously believe that we should be complying with the international organizations like the UN, that we should be taking more uh, um, asylum seekers and refugees into the country by whatever means necessary. So there's going to be a massive play on that. And secondly, it's the inertia of the civil service. Some of them recognize that it's incredibly difficult to do this job and they'd rather avoid it. And they've been obfuscating and creating massive problems for Priti Patel for years. So even if you have a tough home secretary, the real demand here, the real need, is whether Boris Johnson will step up to the plate and really put pressure on those in his cabinet and those in the civil service to get this done. If he does, I think he'll get a stonking win in the next general election because those in the north that are supporting the conservatives in one who won recently will back them enormously yeah i was about to say it could become a huge political uh, issue uh, if if the conservatives haven't sorted this problem particularly when boris johnson pledged as part of the brexit referendum brexit means we get control of our borders back and yet here we are these migrants are, are, are laughing all the way across the channel aren't they Probably the wrong expression to use laughing because they're pretty hazardous journeys and some of them have died, which is terrible. But they are making a mockery of our um, borders policy. They are. And you've only got to look over the last few days of the TikTok migrants who are actually filming themselves going across uh, from Tunisia to Italy, then having parties in uh, Paris and showing off what they were drinking and the cars they were driving and then laughing and joking with everybody in the boats coming across the channel. So there are actually literally those who are coming over having fun doing so. The reality is that we know, even from the World Bank's research now, that over 60% of people that are leaving to enter into countries are economic migrants. They're not asylum in the the sense that most of us would recognize fleeing um, war-torn areas or under real pressure. And so by that sort of action, we would actually be taking the wheat from the chaff. And that's a really important part to deal with this. We cannot just accept economic migrants. We must look at those who are genuinely in need. And this would be a policy that would work practically once we've got it in place. And also politically, it would work for people. Very interesting. That's Stephen Wolfe. He's director of the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Thanks for joining us. 
that time in the podcast when we talk sport. No one better to talk to about it than Tim Nichols, who is, of course, our deputy sports editor at the Daily Mail. Uh, Tim, the Winter Olympics, they're still going on. Have we won a medal yet? I'm afraid we haven't, Andrew. Uh, the wait continues. Uh, there were hopes for Dave riding in the uh, men's slalom skiing. He won uh, an Alpine World Cup, ra- uh, World Cup race last month, which uh, first Brit ever to do so. Really quite a big deal, that. So there were high hopes for, for, for uh, riding to, to win a medal, possibly, uh, you know, any, of any colour would have been fine. But uh, unfortunately, he finished 13th, continuing the trend of Team GB's miserable games. Um, we also failed to qualify for the cross-country skiing uh, men's team. We've still got a couple of chances. All is not. I, I know you're very upset about our performance. So there's um, there's still a couple of chances. Men's curling team have got a chance, plus the women and the men in the bobsleigh, as well as the ski harpite. But I mean, it's been a pretty poor return. You know, we, we, no medals so far. The last two games in Pyeongchang and Sochi five medals at each games, which which for Great Britain is, is pretty good at the Winter Olympics. You know, we that that's that's the highest we've ever done. The aim this time was three to seven. Uh I think we'll be lucky if we get one. And of course, you know, there's an awful lot of money that is pumped into these winter sports, twenty eight million pounds. Uh and, and there's gonna have to be some hard conversations um when they all come home because obviously it has been a huge disappointment and uh, they failed to deliver. Now we all know it, it, winter sport is, is tricky in this country. Uh, we don't have uh, mountains. Uh, we don't have much snow. Uh, but even so, uh, despite um, the difficulties, it's been a particularly disappointing uh, game so far. But there is still hope. There is. Uh, and just like I suppose, Tim, uh, when we did so badly in the Ashes, there was an inquest because it was another bad performance by the cricket team and heads rolled. If we don't yeah. win any medals, will heads roll when they get back the, the team? Possibly. I mean, look, expectations are, are, are usually fairly low, but you would imagine they would. A lot of money's been spent. There were high hopes that this was going to mm. be a, a game where we could get, as I say, th- between three and seven medals of any colour. Uh, and here we are in the second week of the games, running out of time still to get our names on the on the medal table. So, um, yeah, I would have thought there'll be some difficult conversations on their return and, and a, probably a bit of a shake-up uh, to ensure that in four years' time uh, it's an improved performance all round, really. Well, and you can be certain uh, if we do win a medal, uh, we'll be reporting it extensively in the Mail Sports pages and Tim Nichols will be uh, all over it for us. Great to talk to you, Tim. Thanks for coming on. That's Tim Nichols, Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. A new poll by King's College London shows 60% of us wish modern life could be more simple and we're blaming mobiles, computers and social media for making life too fast-paced. But Professor Bobby Duffy, who's director of the college's Policy Institute, suggests we might be romanticising the past. And he joins me now. Professor Duffy, are we romanticising the past? Are we looking at the past through rose-tinted spectacles? Uh, that, that really is a human tendency. In the academic literature, we talk about rosy retrospection, where we literally forget bad things from the past. And and that's actually quite a good human benefit. You get human benefits from that because it's, it's good to let go of uh, bad memories in some ways. But it has this other effect of making us think today is worse than the past and, and be more worried about the future. So it's, it's not a 
completely dumb fault of our brain, but it is a tendency for us to always think things are going downhill. And what sort of people did you talk to for your poll? What, was it a, a, a wide variety age group? Yes, yeah, so this covers the uh, representative of the UK population from uh, 18 up to people in their 60s and 70s. So, yes, and it is it was uh, a, a quite a nuanced position from the public. They do think uh, that uh, life, the pace of life is getting too much for them these days. That has gone up from uh, similar questions that were asked back in the 1980s and 1990s. And that, that's, that's important because, you know, this is that, that sense of things getting more difficult, pace of life increasing is something that you see in all areas of history. But uh, there's definitely been a bit of a change over the past couple of decades in an increased sense of that. So it's gone from uh, 30% of people in 1983 saying the pace of life is too much for these days up to 40 odd percent in uh, last year. So whether it's uh, real or not, whether we really have a, an acceleration in the pace of life, Certainly the perception, the increasing perception among the public is that is changing. I was quite intrigued. Your study found the average person checks their smartphone 50 times a day, whereas, of course, in the 80s, the biggest problem with technology might be a jammed cassette tape. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the context has changed hugely. The availability of information is just completely different now. It's in your hands all the time. And the, the actual what we asked people was how often do you think you you check your phone? And the average guess was 25 times a day, so quite high. Uh, but as you say, the reality is it's somewhere between 50 and 80 times a day, depending on the study um, that you look at. So even even on uh, even with a quite high estimate ourselves, it's not high enough. We we don't quite realise how often we're checking our phones. Um, which and you can see that in people's attitudes as well. There's half of people say that they can't help themselves from checking their phones when they know they should be getting on with another task. Um, it has become a quite automatic uh, response and, and we don't, well, at least half of us don't feel completely in control of that. How often do you check your phone, Professor? <laughs> I was thinking about this and I, I can quite believe that it's 50 times a day when you, you think about uh, the way that that data is collected is it, it's it's collected passively from the phones it's not asking people so it's actually how many times people unlock their phones a day that um, the technology companies can collect these days and i can imagine that that is the case because you do very absent-mindedly just uh, flick the screen open to have a look at things quickly and it, it does show how absolutely integrated into our lives um, these devices have become for for many of us our attention spans are they are we are we are we are they shorter than they used to be or do we just think they are oh that's a fascinating question so yes the, there's a lot of rhetoric around right now about our collapsing attention spans in this war on attention that, that we're living through but the the reality is there's no good academic data that has tracked the length of attention spans over time that can give us any confidence that they are declining. It's quite a complex uh, concept, attention span, that has a number of facets to it, but there is no strong evidence that that has gone down downhill, despite lots of claims around it. But the perception, as you say, perception on the public is very much that it's gone downhill. There's this um, undying myth about attention spans, that they're only eight seconds long, shorter than a goldfish. And that's been thoroughly debunked as a piece of, uh, of research or a claim. 
uh, but half of the public believe it's true. Um, they think that our attention spans are uh, only up to eight uh, seconds long. So we've taken on board this sense that uh, attention spans are very short and that they're declining, even though the evidence for that is not really there at all. And um, what about your own students? What would, what would you say about their attention span? Have you noticed any change over the years? Well, actually, that, again, it's really interesting that it's um, what we do know from the academic research is that we, we're looking at this in our Centre for Attention Studies is that there are downsides to multi-screening and you know, trying to focus on a lecture while also checking your phones or looking at other types of screens. That, there are, there's lots of good evidence that that affects your short-term working memory, that you don't take in it when you are trying to do those multiple uh, tasks. So there are, there are downsides to that. Um, uh, which you, know, you need to recognize and you need to try to control. Like humans are, are adaptable at changing their focus from one thing to another. I think what we've got to, I guess, explore more is uh, how do we harness the benefits of this new information environment and this new technology that we've got, not just focus on the downsides, but are there, are there ways that we can use that new environment to improve the way that we learn or the way that we share information? or the way that we engage with others. And I think it's, um, it's trying, to, trying to get to that sense of how do we use this for benefit, not just see the downside. Fascinating, really fascinating. That's Professor Bobby Duffy, who is uh, Director of King's College London's Policy Institute, which has done this absolutely fascinating poll. 60% of us wish modern life could be more simple. But you know, Professor, we could never give up those phones, could we? No, we, we are addicted. That is true. For good reason. They give us a lot of benefits in, in many ways. But... We need to take account of those downsides too. I think you're right. Professor Bobby Duffy, thanks for joining us. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, why don't you download the Mail Plus app? Every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs>